0: Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. So, as you can see uh, from the title, uh, today the theme of my talk is gonna be on uh, how the biological clock, uh, a system that drives physiological and behavioral rhythms, regulates uh, mood. Okay? And this is a question that my lab is very much interested in. Um, so we approach this question from two different angles. Uh, from one side, we look at how stress can affect biological rhythms that may then lead to mood disorders. And from the other side, we look at how uh, this very cu- uh, interesting and counterintuitive observation that's been known since like the ni- uh, late. 50s, that sleep deprivation can rapidly reverse depressive disorders in depressed patients. Okay, uh, And there's not really that much known about how the system works, uh, partly because the, the tools were not available around in those days to try and tease apart the circuit. So uh, our lab and a few others around the world uh, are now trying to like, look into these questions. Okay? Uh, and my talk is going to be broken up into four sort of general Sections. First, I'll sort of explain why we're interested in mood disorders. Then, uh, that's first. Secondly, I'll then uh, give a brief description of circadian rhythms and sleep-wake cycle, and then I'll go into some information uh, that we know about the link between clock uh, rhythmicity and mood disorders, and then I'll finish off with some PR and talk about the research in our lab. Okay, so. Moving on, uh, why are we interested in mood disorders? So, according to the World Health Organization, right, uh, major depressive disorders is projected to be uh, one of the leading contributors to the global burden of disease, okay? Uh, and a more recent article in The Guardian last year uh, reported, and they actually used another, uh, another report from the WHO, that there's about a trillion dollars a year lost in productivity, okay? And the problem uh, is that with current treatment approaches uh, for mood disorders, we use this monoamine reuptake uh, it 's based on the monoamine hypothesis, so most of these uh, current medications they they prevent monoamine reuptake and the findings i mean the reason we use this is, uh, this this uh, treatment uh, approach is, comes from uh, what 's now i guess sixty year old findings accidental findings that you know patients taking monoamine uh, blockers uptake blockers were feeling better okay? and there was no real research done in trying to understand what happens in the brain in terms of mood disorders. Okay? Um, and The problem with current medication is this three main problems. So it's only effective in about, depending on the literature you read, it's only effective in about 50% of patients uh, and those patients that respond positively to this antidepressant medication the effect can take weeks or months okay? and of course like a lot of medication, uh, serious side effects is a, is a major problem. Okay? So um, the work that I did previously in Mount Sinai before coming here, uh, I looked at how, and a lot of other people who are interested in this field, they've looked at how stress uh, can affect mood. And then they've tried to understand sort of the basic circuit and molecular biological processes that that result in mood uh, disorders. Um, Now, in our group, we are interested in understanding how uh, stress may affect the circadian or the sleep-wake cycle, which then may lead to mood disorders. So I'll explain a little bit more about the circadian sleep-wake system through the lecture. But you can think of the circadian system as a clock, okay? It's an oscillating, regularly, regular, regular oscillating clock. Um, whereas the sleep-wake cycle this is controlled by various different uh, nuclei in other parts of the brain. You can think of that as an hourglass, okay? So it resets, okay? And the circadian and sleep-wake system, they overlap but separate, but the separate systems, but they interact with each other, okay? So for example, the sleep-wake cycle, the longer you are awake, the greater your sleep pressure, or your sleep need increases, all right? And then at some point, you fall asleep, and then the longer you sl- sleep, uh, as you, the longer you sleep, the need, the pressure for sleep decreases. So it's like this clock, this uh, hourglass clock, okay? So think of a, a clock, and an hourglass system. Um, okay, so, and you probably come across this idea of uh, the connections between mood and uh, rhythmicity. For example, with patients who suffer from seasonal affective disorders, uh, seen in, in people living in high latitudes. For example, there some of these findings where they followed people who suffer in the winter time, when sunlight is low, uh, and daylight hours are short, sorry. They found the serotonin, dopamine, noradrenaline levels, so these are monoamines, so uh, neurotransmitters we know are involved in mood and other behaviours as well, their levels are much lower compared to when they measure in the same patients, le- the levels of these, these neurotransmitters in the summertime. Okay? Um, I apologise for my drawing, I got carried away with PowerPoint, but this is just to show summertime, wintertime. All right, so the levels of neurotransmitters also fluctuate between the summertime and the wintertime. Okay, uh, and another thing, if you can see here, they've also found what they call a shift in melatonin response. You've probably heard of melatonin. Melatonin is released from the pineal gland. It's under, it's a uh, pineal gland is an area in, in in the middle of your brain. It's under circadian control, and the level of melatonin oscillates throughout the day and night. Okay, uh, for us then, it's uh, low in the daytime, and then in, at dusk, the levels go up. Okay, and this is part of the reason why you start feeling sleepy because melatonin, amongst other things, it induces sleepiness. Okay, there are other pathways as well, but that's one of the functions of melatonin. Now, what they found was in patients who are suffering from seasonal affective disorders in the winter time, their melatonin rhythmicity shifted. Okay, it's still released in some patients in some studies. The level is not as high, but the main point is the rhythmicity is shifted. Right? So it's what we call phase delayed, so the levels, instead of coming up during dusk, the levels of release of melatonin comes up much later in the evening. Okay, And this may be part of the reason why people with uh, SAD, the majority of people with SAD have problems going to sleep. Okay? Um, okay, so there's one evidence, and then I mentioned this interesting thing with sleep deprivation and how it can rapidly reverse depressive disorders. Uh, so... In about 60% of patients who are typically, what well, they say, treatment resistant, so they don't uh, respond positively to standard monoamine medication, 60% of patients respond positively. They report rapid, and this is a key word, rapid alleviation of depressive symptoms, okay? Uh, some of the uh, findings from different studies vary a bit, but it's much more rapid than monoamine treatments, okay? But the problem is, there's a couple of problems. One is when a patient falls asleep, or they take a nap even, they report, and then they wake up, they report feeling depressed again, all right? Um, and of course, another obvious problem with sleep deprivation is we actually need sleep, you'll we'll come to in a bit, because if, some, if sleep deprives someone long enough, you'll kill them. So, uh, if we can find out how sleep deprivation may uh, reverse depressive disorders, and we think part of the way it may doing this is it may be resetting the clock in our brain, uh, we can then potentially develop sort of targeted therapeutic strategies, right? As a novel targeted therapeutic strategy to mimic the effect of how sleep deprivation may be reversing depressive disorders. Uh, so, yeah, so this is the two approaches. So we have uh, effects of looking at stress on these circadian sleep-wake systems and then how sleep deprivation may be possibly resetting these systems to then reverse or reset the clock and reverse depressive disorders. Okay? All right. So... Now I'll talk a little bit, and just give a brief overview on what the circadian system is and the sleep-wake cycle is, or the science of it. Uh, so circadian comes from the Latin word circa, which means about, and diem, which means day. So it's about, a, about day. Uh, most organisms, right, we are through wonderful evolution, we are entrained to our environment, okay? So we, uh, our environments, we have a 24-hour day or night, uh, and most organisms are uh, synchronized we're adapted to our environment. We're synchronised to our environment. Okay? Um, so I put this plant here because you, uh, actually it was first reported uh, about 2,500 years ago. There was a general in um, Alexander the Great's army. I forget his name right now. He actually wrote. That's the oldest re- re- report we have, have of something exhibiting circadian rhythmicity. And I was actually close to this region here in Bahrain when they were hiking through this area. Um, he reported the tamarind plant they move their leaves in day and night. So in the daytime, the leaves come up. Nighttime, the leaves go down, Okay. Um, And then this guy here, French astronomer, uh, Jean-Jacques well, you get his name. Uh, Sorry, Claude. (laughs) Um, So he did this experiment. So he wanted to see whether it was an uh, an intrinsic rhythmic uh, uh, clock in the plant, or was it something external? Uh, that was causing this leaves to op- uh, go up and go down. Right? So he did this experiment where he put this leaf, uh, this plant, actually it was a mimosa plant, so not this this plant here, but same thing. He put it in a box, right? Uh, light tight box, or as light tight as you could make it, and then he observed whether the leaves would go up and go down. And of course, they did. So that showed that it was not due to some external factor, but Something within the plant itself, but interestingly enough, he actually came to the wrong conclusion. He thought it was still somehow tracking sun, uh, the sunlight. Um, it was only about 100 years later uh, uh, some other scientists came up and, and sort of dis- uh, and conf- not confirm, but they, they proposed that it was actually due to an internal clock in the plant that was inducing this oscillation. Uh, and we see this oscillations in a variety of organisms, right? which shows that this is probably a very ancient, uh, most likely an ancient uh, process that developed. So if you look up here, for example, certain types of fungi, they exhibit this property where during, uh, in, at night they fluoresce. So they change some sort of uh, uh, activation of chemical processes that lead to this fluorescence, right? And people who work on these fungi don't actually there different camps on the, the role of this change in fluorescence or non-fluorescence during the day and night. But two leading ideas that I've heard of is one is it attracts insects to come and take their spores away, right? Uh, and a second thing, a biochemical hypothesis, is that uh, the, the chemical reactions that happen during this fluorescence period that can also remove. Uh, reactive oxygen species. So reactive oxygen species can be quite uh, harmful for cells and these fluorescence, the reactions that happen during fluorescence have been shown to remove these uh, species. Uh, Also, isania bacteria. Uh, They undergo this rhythmicity. Um, So I hope I'm not too wrong, because we have some specialists here. Uh, They they go through this process of, at night, they do uh, nitrogen fixation. So they fix nitrogen from the environment and they use nitrogen for their biochemical processes. And during the day, they photosynthesize, so they make energy, right? So you have this opposing sort of rhythmicity going on. Okay. Uh, And you see this rhythmicity in physiological responses. So this is a cartoon of real data taken from a human subject. So you see here, so we're diurnal, right? So we're awake during the day, sleep during the night. Well, most of us do. So you see, you know, activities up here and then it goes down uh, during sleep period. And you'll see also various parameters change. So temperature oscillates accordingly. So there's growth hormone, cortisol, so stress hormone levels, right? They go down throughout the day and then they go down and then before you wake up, they start increasing again, right? And then you also see, I mean, these are big sort of chemicals, but then you also see ions, like different ions and all these pathways. They oscillate, they go up and down. Um, so we see physiological rhythms and we see behavioural rhythms, right? And we'll talk, touch a little bit more on this when we talk about sleep. So animals, they have, they have rhythmicity in their characteristics. In, for example, animals, certain animals will forage for food at certain times of the day or night. Uh, also, yeah, there are certain adaptations to avoid predators when they're around. You avoid predators at certain times of the day. So these are rhythmic processes, okay? And I put this up here because it's an interesting and really cool time for us, because the Nobel Prize for Medicine and Physiology this year was was awarded to these three guys, Jeffrey Hall, Michael Rothbash, and Michael Young, for sort of elucidating the mechanism of circadian rhythmicity. And they did it in Drosophila, so Claude will be very happy because Claude works in Drosophila here. also, it's very interesting for us because one of our chair of uh, biology at NYU, New York, and our former program head here in NYU Abu Dhabi, uh, Justin Blau, uh, did his postdoc with Michael Young, and one of his of Justin's papers was actually cited in the uh, Nobel press release. Okay, so anyway, it's an exciting time for us, and this is a very simplified sort of molecular pathway of what happens in terms of circadian rhythmicity. Okay, but just to show to you the basic process, so. There's this rhythmic uh, basically feedback loop going on where these proteins called clock and beam, I don't have to worry so much about the names, but these proteins, they, uh, they're called what are called transcription factors. They lead to uh, transcription, so a uh, change in levels of pro- other proteins, right? By activating their genes. Uh, but one of the things they do is they, they, they activate uh, uh, the production of these two proteins, Cryptochrome and Period, okay? These proteins, via various other biochemical pathways go and then inhibit their own expression. So they inhibit the binding of this clock and BMAL that then lead to their expression, right? So is a negative feedback loop going on So and this oscillates, right, throughout the day and night. So during the day, clock and BMAL levels are the highest and these proteins are the lowest and then during the night they switch, right, and it's a gradual sort of rhythmic process. And this change in oscillation, this oscillating process that you find, for example, in the, and I'll talk about the the master clock in a bit, leads to various things. So, as I mentioned, these can activate production of other proteins, right? Uh, They lead to change in gene regulation, so you get oscillation in gene expression. You get physiological changes, so changes in neurodynamics throughout the day and night, uh, which then ultimately leads to also oscillations in behaviour, okay? So, these are the sort of three processes. Um, and this is a basic circuit. So this is a suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's in the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus does a lot of things. Uh, that regu- uh, there are different nuclei in the hypothalamus that regulate uh, eating, feeding behaviour, dr- uh, drinking behaviour, feeding behaviour, aggression. Okay? Uh, and also we have our master clock situated in the uh, hypothalamus in the, super, in the place called suprachiasmatic nucleus. And this diagram here, I'm just trying to show you that there are a bunch of cl- uh, cells, right? in the the SCN, they all oscillate, okay? They have this what we call, it's called a master clock, they have this uh, natural oscillatory property and they lead to a change in uh, activity of neural projections from them to other areas of the brain and body. They also lead to change in oscillations of hormone levels which then uh, trigger or modulate activity of what we call secondary oscillators. So we all have secondary sort of cells outside of the SCN that also have this rhythmicity but their rhythmicity is also set mainly by the master clock. And again, there's a feedback system like in biology, a lot of biological processes. We have neural and hormonal inputs that also regulate the activity of SCN. Okay, so this is its own endogenous rhythmicity, but a lot of its rhythmicity is also set by light, Okay, So you have these projections from specific neurons from the retina uh, that are not part of the rods and cones, right? So they are non-image-forming but photosensitive cells which project the SCN and they reset and set the clock. So that's why you have your endogenous rhythmicity, but light, you, are, you can reset, uh, or your clock is reset during the day when you wake up, okay. um, And this is a, an example of one of the uh, behavioural outputs we measure is wheel running. Um, if you see here, mice love to run on wheels in the lab. And what we can do is we can measure their activity. So if you look on this cartoon here, this is actually a real real piece of data, not ours, uh, from another lab. Where you can the top bar here denotes black means nighttime, white means daytime. So this mouse has been entrained trained to a day-night cycle, a 12-12 day night cycle, right? Uh, so zero to twelve light comes on, twelve to twenty-four lights off, and so on and so forth. And you'll see mice are nocturnal. So the activity, so they're not really that active during the day but then during the night, the activity goes up, right? Uh, and then it sort of decreases, but they're more active here. And then during the day when the light comes on again, they're not as active. And then what you can do to see if it's an endogenous rhythmicity, right, you can then turn off the light cues, right? So what happens now is the mouse is entrained to the light cycle that was on previously. This is the same as jet lagging, right? When you go somewhere, you're, you're jet lagged because you're brought, your clock is still entrained to whatever light cycle you came from, right? Uh, but what happens here, the, the mouse now is not getting any light cues. It's endogenous clock is still running. But what you'll see is it starts shifting here. And the reason it's shifting, it's still following its period. It's because mice, for example, they have a, their natural periodicity, periodicity is about 23.7 hours. It's not 20, exactly 24, right? So it starts phase shifting, phase advancing, all right? So it's, uh, by a few minutes every day, it start, the activity advances, all right? Um, and this is just to show that this is how the clock... So in the light-dark cycle, light resets the clock every, every day time, and this drives various factors in the brain, right? The sleep cycle, motivation regions in the brain, and regions that activate activity, We then the net output is effect on, on wheel-running behaviour, OK? But then you can also do experiments where, in this, in this particular study here, they remove the, the, one of the clock genes I mentioned, proteins, period protein, So they actually remove the gene for this period protein. You can knock it out, so it's a transgenic mice. And again, you'll see during the light-dark cycle, the mouse still follows, it's entrained, right? So the clock, the light can reset the the clock. Because I showed you a very simplified diagram, there are other pathways involved, right? So somehow light is still, even though you remove the period protein, it can reset the other pathways, and the clock runs, uh, it follows the day-night cycle. However, when you let it run, what we call free run, so you remove the light uh, stimuli. Now the rhythmicity is all over the place. Okay? So this mouse is what we call arrhythmic. Because here you see even though it's, it's drifting, it's still following some sort of rhythmicity. Here the mouse has no rhythm. So it'll be resting, walking, running, whatever, and different, you know, all over the place. Uh, so this is one way, for example, you can knock out a gene and then see what it does. And this is an example of, of, of this kind of studies. OK, so that was circadian rhythms. Now we'll quickly go on to sleep. Right. So sleep is a behavior, it's not uh, just another form of, um, uh, of unconsciousness as such, right, or coma. Because the definition of sleep is something that is readily reversible, state of reduced responsiveness to an interaction with the environment, plus the need for sleep increases when you deprive someone of sleep, okay? And this cartoon here, again, is just from a textbook, you'll see it varies between, there's a big variation between uh, organisms. So one of the longest sleepers are bats. They sleep about 19.9 hours a day. Uh, Humans sleep on average about eight hours, eight to 10 hours, okay? Um, But then interesting, you see uh, these herbivores, these large herbivores, they sleep very little, like 3.9 hours. I think horses, yeah, sleep about two something hours. Um, And also, I don't know how true this is, apparently cows also sleep with their eyes open, or there's been some observations. But this is probably, partly, probably an adaptive, sort of uh, uh, an evolutionary trait, right? So they don't sleep much because they're prey for a lot of animals, or they were, right? So you don't sleep much, then you're more responsive to your environment, um, right? And I don't know if any of you have heard this before, so sleep is, seems to be everywhere. So there's a very recent paper came out a few well, months ago, I think, they found uh, this upside-down jellyfish, it's a very ancient jellyfish, so there's a group uh, in MIT. Uh, sorry, Caltech, came up with this uh, study where they found that this jellyfish, which is very interesting, they don't have a brain as such, they have neurons, but they don't have a, a brain as we know it. But then they still exhibit the sleep, they, f- they follow the criteria of sleep, they exhibit sleep-like behaviour, right? Um, So this begs the question whether sleep is just an inherent property of neurons and maybe what we do is in in more complex animals, organisms, it's just an emergent property as a result of the need of neurons' behaviour for sleep-like activity. And you can see in this cartoon here, this is for humans, right? So the characteristics of sleep varies through our lifetime. Okay, so conception. And then some of this, of course, they've extrapolated because I don't know how you can measure uh, very initial points of conception. But uh, in utero, babies have undergo through predominantly REM sleep. Okay? Uh, and then another thing you'll see as we grow older, we generally tend to sleep less. And the architecture of REM and non-REM sleep, and I'll just uh, explain this in a bit, also changes. And also sleep seems to be very important because there's this condition called fatal familial insomnia. It's a rare genetic disorder. It uh, results in a mutation, as far as we know, of gene encoding for prime proteins. You've probably heard of prime proteins from uh, uh, pathologies such as CJD, right? Uh, Causes, uh, basically, uh, due to sort of misfolding of proteins. And this protein, naturally, is involved in thought to be involved in synaptic plasticity, neuron, increasing neural connections, and so on and so forth. But when this protein misfolds, it causes death in cells. And one of the areas they found it causes damage to is an area of the thalamus, which is important in sleep. And these are the symptoms. So you get progressive insomnia, hallucinations, so on and so forth, and ultimately death. But of course, it's, you've got to take this, this you know, the death could be due to, and all the symptoms could be due to, like a progressive increase in, in, in death of different areas of the, of the brain. Alright, okay, now this is what we know generally uh, about why we sleep. So this is the neurochemical mechanisms, right? So we have the wake-promoting regions of our brain uh, in in research in in our field. We call it the uh, ascending wake-promoting area. So you'll notice these uh, 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 neurotransmitters here uh, and neuropeptides, they're uh, histamine, dopamine, they're these monoamines that are involved in mood. Do you, when their activity, or the regions of the brain that produces uh, neurotransmitters, when their activity increases, together with another area that produces acetylcholine, that sends active projections to the cortex that basically activates the cortex, wakes you up. That's the basic sort of idea of the ascending wake promoting area of the brain. And then we have the sleep uh, promoting area, right? And there's this interplay going on. So there's another area that has, I put GABA here. GABA is basically just an inhibitory neurotransmitter. It blocks, it lowers activity of cells. So, and galanine is an inhibitory neuropeptide. And basically, this shuts down the activity of these, right? So we get something like this. It's what we call the flip flop model, all right? So, when, and it's basically who has the highest net activity. So, Orexin. This uh, a neuropeptide, uh, ultra hypothalamus, this, when this is more active, this activates further these monoamine systems, right? Which then send projections up to the cortex, uh, wakes you up. And also, what it does there, it, what, the projections from these areas to this uh, sleep promoting area, it sends inhibitory neurotransmitters, which blocks the activity of, oh, sorry, of this uh, sleep-promoting area, and then you get vice versa. So when the net activity of the wake-promoting is, is bigger, you're awake. When the net activity of the inhibitory system uh, is, is bigger, you're asleep, okay? Because this sends inhibitory projections to the wake-promoting areas. And also, as a side, orexin uh, mutations, in, for, for example, dogs suffer from, can suffer from narcolepsy. Uh, studies in dogs and I think a couple of studies in humans have shown that uh, orexin levels are lower Okay, in uh, animals with uh, narcoleptic models, of uh, animal models, so that's why they go into this sleep-like state. Alright, and quickly this uh, will talk about the physiology of the wake and sleeping brain. So we can measure brain activity by putting basically electrodes on the head, doing EEG, electroencephalography. And when we go to sleep, this is a general process, okay? This is awake. You have this high activity alpha beta rhythms. Uh, so this band of activity, high frequency, low amplitude. amplitude right. So your brain is very active. There's a lot of uh, things going on. That's why the amplitude is lower because nothing is synchronized. Different parts of the brain are acting different frequencies. So you have this high frequency, low amplitude. And then you go into stage one here. So this is when you're about to fall asleep. The transition from wake to sleep. I hope you guys are not falling asleep while I'm talking here. All right, uh, so then you go into what is this, theta rhythms, okay? Uh, here. And then this goes from, you, go, you just progressively go from stage one. Here you, your muscle, your body temperature starts, goes, starts going down, you're more relaxed. Then you go into stage two non-sleep. Here your eyes start rolling back and forth. Uh, So, stage one is just a couple of minutes, then you go down to stage two, and you also got this different, uh, you know, dynamics going. All these these things called spindle and K-complexes, they just mean greater synchronization of different parts of your brain. Different parts are, some parts are just shutting down or slowing down, other parts are synchronizing more together. So, you'll notice you get these things in like the K-complexes, you get this large amplitude activity. And then you go to stage three, where you start seeing this delta rhythm. So now now we start seeing the beginnings of slow wave sleep, right, so the amplitude is getting bigger, the frequency is slowing down, the brain is more synchronized, and then we go into stage four, deep sleep, where more than 50% of the activity in the brain at this point is, is delta rhythms, right, very low frequency activity. So it takes about 30 minutes, when you first go to sleep, to reach stage four. So you go awake, one, two, three, four. Again, you stay there for about 30 minutes from most human studies, and then you go, you stay in stage four for about another 30 minutes and then you go up, these arrows here, then you rapidly cycle back up from four, three, two, one, but instead of going to wake, you go into REM sleep. Okay, so REM sleep is this period of, it's interesting, because REM sleep has activities very similar to being awake, but you're not awake. And also this is when you have most of your very odd, vivid dreams, is during REM sleep period. And also another interesting cool thing with REM sleep is so you're having this rapid eye movement, and, but your eyes are moving a lot, but your body, you're under paralysis, or most of us are, okay? So what happens is from the uh, the back part of the brain is sending uh, negative projections to your motor neurons in your spine that normally activate your arms and legs. It's actually inhibiting, so the, this high activity of the, some areas that re- induce REM sleep, they inhibit the motor neurons in your spine, okay? If that circuit doesn't work properly, then you have like these REM sleep disorders where you act out your dreams, which is pretty dangerous because if you're doing, you know, you're moving a lot, you can, you can hurt whoever you're sleeping next to or yourself. Uh, and another thing you'll see with REM sleep is or the sleep architecture changes throughout the night, okay? So, as, as, for humans at least, as you progress through the night, so for say eight hours or whatever, the amount of REM sleep increases, okay? And the amount of slow-wave sleep decreases. Uh, and then you see your heart rate oscillates, also fluctuates, so respiration, okay, so during REM sleep, respiration, heart rate is higher, during wave sleep, sleep, it's lower. Okay, now, why do we sleep? So, most of us uh, sleep for about one-third of our lifetimes, right, everyone does it, most people do it, uh, but we don't really know why we sleep. So, there are three ideas. Uh, One is for energy conservation, so so basically to lower the overall metabolic uh, rate. So this reduces muscular tension, heart rate, blood pressure, so on and so forth. Um, And you see this actually in herbivores and there's a very interesting correlation here. So small animals, they have a larger uh, surface area uh, to body volume ratio, right? So they lose heat much quicker. So they need to keep their metabolism higher, so their metabolic rate is much higher. So they sleep much longer than larger herbivores, okay? And this data is very tight. You can see when when you look at herbivores, it's not so clear. It's actually all over the place with carnivores. So this is one idea, so energy conservation. Uh, Another idea is restoration of brain and body. So again, don't need to go to the details, but for the brain, for example, we have cerebrospinal fluid. You probably heard of it. It's, uh, uh, it's fluid in our in our spinal cord and in our brain. It sends nutrients to our cells in the brain, but it also removes toxins. Now, it's been measured uh, in a couple of studies in rodents that the rate of flow of the cerebrospinal fluid is much increased during the night, during their sleep time. Sorry. Okay. So it removes uh, toxins. Um, also, it's been shown uh, during sleep we get healing of muscle cells and tissues, and also of heart cells. Uh, And it's also very important for children and teens. This has been shown. It increases growth hormone releases, the greater release of growth hormones during sleep, which is important for muscle and skeletal development. Uh, And also, just to show, a couple of studies have shown, you know, when you're sleep deficient or if you go have suffered from multiple jet lags, people like pilots and uh, stewards, uh, there's increased risk of diabetes because the cells in some studies have shown that it does not respond to insulin as well. There's increased risk of obesity, immune responses decreased, and also one study showing increased risk of cancer, okay? Um, And thirdly, there's also this idea that it helps in memory consolidation. So on the graph here, this is a human study where subjects were uh, taught to learn um, sort of a sequence of syllables, and then a set were allowed to sleep, a set were not allowed to sleep and then they measured their uh, ability to recall and they found that those that slept had a better recall. Okay, so a relatively simple study. And then here, this is a cartoon of a study that was done where you can train a mouse to walk, so it's uh, run on a, on a rotor rod, so you, it basically it's procedural memory. It learns its, ability, has its, learns its ability to walk on a rotating rod and then uh, if a mouse was allowed to sleep, it has, it has a better chance of uh, performing uh, or walking on the road to road again later compared to mice when, that were not allowed to sleep. Okay, and the idea behind this is sleep uh, leads to this oscillatory activity that strengthens plasticity in the brain. And this is what learning and memory is. Right, you have plastic, the brain is plastic. When you learn something, you have increased connections in different parts of the brain. That. Um, you know, it's what happens when you're learning. So they believe that these different oscillations I mentioned in the sleep cycle, the spindles and the K-complexes, they believe that that may be part of the way that we get increased consolidation of memory of learning a task. Uh, And then when you sleep, that's what happens and then you you learn it better, okay? And of course, there's a reason why babies sleep for long periods of time. So babies, as I showed you earlier, have a long, uh, spend most of their time in REM sleep. This increases brain plasticity. Um, and also, it's been shown, for example, uh, there was a study from Australia where uh, babies that did not sleep uh, 10 hours or, or slept 10 hours or less a day uh, had issues with language, uh, uh, develop, um, d- development of language. Okay? Um, okay. Now, those are the three ideas of why we maybe sleep. So now we talk about, you know, they're just different adaptations to sleep due to our niche, the environment we're in. Okay? so you'll see, for example, in the wild, Arctic, the Arctic sandpiper during mating season, the male avoids sleep to fight off competition. So it actually sleep deprives itself for uh, several weeks. Okay, uh, and we have um, what we call here during predator avoidance. There are uh, species like deer, rabbits. So there's a lot. They're most active during the twilight hours. So just before sunset or just before sunrise. Um, so they shift their, their, their sleep-wake cycle. Apparently it's believed it's, these times are when it's harder to actually see animals. So for prey, it's harder to find these uh, deer. And then I find this really interesting just from a neurobiological perspective. We have, for example, the frigate birds. So these birds have this amazing ability to fly nonstop for weeks or months according to some reports, right? So what's curious is they, they lift, they fly over water, over oceans, but for some reason they don't have water, uh, waterproof wings, so they can't land on water, all right? So they'll either migrate for, for months or even when they're feeding, sometimes they'll just, just they fly around, uh, so, but they can't go down into the water. So this is a graph from a, actually a very interesting paper. This is in the Falkland Islands. What they did is, is they, they, they implanted some electrodes on these frigate birds. So these are huge birds. So they have a wingspan of about 2.3 metres, so about something feet right? Uh, And they recorded their activity. And what they found was these birds, the reason why they can stay afloat for that long is they actually switch the hemispheres. So not the whole brain doesn't go to sleep, just one hemisphere goes to sleep, okay? They can switch. This is the same thing with dolphins. So dolphins, they're mammals, right? They breathe air. So they swim, but if they stop swimming, Sink. I mean, they you know they, they can potentially die, so they need to come up. So they actually have to come up actively up to the surface and breathe and go down. So they do the same thing. And and this is the data, some data from a dolphin study where they implant, didn't implant electrodes inside the brain. They implanted, I think, above the surface. But here you can see an active. Uh, so here is fully awake. The right and left hemisphere. It's you know active. It's high uh, high oscillation, uh, low amplitude, high os, uh, oscillatory activity. And then you look down here. In this particular case the right hemisphere now is undergoing sleep the left hemisphere is awake and then it switches okay right goes to sleep right uh, left is sorry right is awake left is asleep so it switches hemisphere very cool don't understand the mechanism right because i think it's quite hard to expect you to do research on dolphins but uh, this has been uh, replicated in a couple of studies okay now we go into the link between mood and daily rhythm so as i mentioned there's not much known about this connection, right? It's only now that we have tools that we can try and tease apart cellularly and molecularly what's happening, or we hope to. But for example, in this cartoon here, we see that depressed patients, it's been reported in a few papers, they, even though they're depressed most of the time, they feel particularly bad in the morning and they feel slightly happier in the evening. So you see, and this has been reported in various studies, apparently. So they have this oscillation. They feel bad in the morning, uh, better in the evening. And then there have been this measures here. So this is temperature. What they found is in a variety of patient, uh, uh, depressed patients, they have this blunted rhythmicity in temperature. Remember, temperature undergoes oscillations. So the, if you can see the red dotted line here, that's in depressed patients. The blue-black oscill- uh, line here is in non-depressed patients. So you have this robust oscillation in non-depressed patients in temperature, and you have this blunted. You still have an oscillation, but it's blunted. Okay? and then. Rhythms and stress hormone levels, they're what we call phase advanced. So the, level of the, the, the release of stress hormones um, occurs much earlier during uh, the day and it stays up more elevated during the night. Okay? So it's called phase advanced. And then melatonin, I mentioned melatonin earlier. Melatonin uh, uh, release is delayed. Okay? And this is all in, in depressed patients. So the key point is that we have this change in rhythmicity. We don't know really what's happening yet, but we see that, so this is a, this is a cartoon to show we have this uh, gene A or hormone A in B, B and B. They have this, 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 this rhythmicity. So in depressed patients, we see either a rap, an increase in rhythmicity, a widening of the rhythmicity, or just shifting, of advance or delaying. Main point is change in rhythmicity of various uh, factors. Okay? Um, and now I have this position here. We start going into sort of what we're trying to look at and the there, there are evidence there is of mood and depression and, and rhythms and depression. So there's this idea here called the social Zeitgeber theory of mood disorders. So Zeitgeber is a German word for time giver. So social time giver theory of mood disorder simply uh, describes um, social stimuli, stresses, such as you know work, we're just rushing everywhere, uh, or light. And we're all exposed to abnormally longer hours of light, right? It's dark outside, we have light here. A lot of us play on our phone or work late, but we have our bodies uh, uh, evolve for a certain um, periodicity in some sense, but we are pushing our system longer than it's been adapted for, okay? And then of course we are, a lot of us fly, travel, so we are shifting our clocks more so than we normally adapted to do, right? So this may be a reason why we have this increase in depressive disorders, right? And of course, there's also more reporting, but... So this idea says that maybe the increase we see of uh, mood disorders globally is due to these sort of like longer lighting hours and of course just light stresses, right? Um, And I mentioned here the light. We're exposed to uh, longer periods of light exposure. It could be related with this circuit here, and this comes from this review paper here. So I mentioned we have these photosensitive receptors. They're not image-forming, right? they're not our rods and cones, which is why blind people still have circadian rhythmicity if they have their eyes. If you remove, if they don't have eyes, they're actually arrhythmic, right? So blind people, these receptors still respond to light, but they don't go to your visual cortex, right? They send projections to your SCN, your suprachiasmatic nucleus is your circadian clock, right? Which then also, but it also the SCN sends projections to other parts of the brain, but also these uh, light-sensitive neurons send projections to other areas and I've just simplified it here, it sends regions that regulate rhythmicity, sleep-wake cycle, but also brain regions that regulate emotion, mood, learning and memory, motivation, okay? So now we have this circuit where light can regulate different aspects of behavior, right? Um, And with this knowledge, we are gonna go into, like, try and tease about how these circuits may be affected in our model of depression. I'll come to that in a bit. Uh, okay, you've heard of chronotherapeutics, right? Using the natural body's rhythms to increase the efficiency of drugs, okay? Uh, as I mentioned, we have rhythmicity and different uh, rhythm, rates, rhythms in different parts of our body. So parts of the body that uh, there are certain uh, absorption processes happen better at certain times of the day than others, right? Excretion, metabol- metabolism, distribution, so heart rate changes fluctuate. So these things affect how effective a drug can be. And I've just put this up here. For example, this is a study done some time ago. This is a patient with normal blood pressure. This is a patient with higher blood pressure. But you see there's this oscillation. So what they found was in these patients, when they gave them this antihypertensive drug, it was much more effective when they gave it to the patient during their, I think, late, uh, during the early morning time when their heart rate was being the highest, okay? Because they're they're, they're hypertensive, so even though you get this oscillation, but... Every, the, the, when the high peak was very high. So the drug was most effective during the uh, uh, highest level of, of, of pressure. Okay. Uh, and then it's also now used for chronotherapeutics. It's now used for regulating mood disorders. And you might have heard of some of this. or so light therapy. This is a depressed patient sleeping. And you can do this where some... And been, it's been shown to work in a subset of patients where you can give them light one or two hours before their usual waking time. So you basically expose them to bright light. And this has shown, been shown to have an antidepressant effect, or you can use this light therapy together with it increases the effectiveness of, of antidepressant medication. Uh, there's also this and this is related with light therapy. You can also do what we call what they call sleep phase advanced therapy, where you basically wake up a patient, you shift them. So again, it's a all about shifting cycles, right? You wake them up earlier. So if the cycle is not functioning properly, you force them to wake up earlier, right? Maybe you're resetting the clock, but it's been shown to have an antidepressant effect another way, again, people have used phase shifting with, uh, so sort of sleep phase advancing with medication, soon to be very effective. Okay, And of course, sleep deprivation. So as I mentioned, you can either sleep-deprived, subset of patients res- respond, uh, uh, the effectiveness, or the effectiveness of antidepressant medication is much more, is, be- is better, is increased with sleep deprivation. Okay? Um, and... Also, I think I find this very interesting. Ketamine is a drug uh, used for anesthetic. We use it in our surgeries on rodents. Um, and, but it's also a drug used by uh, it's illegal uh, in some places because people, it's a recreational drug. Uh, um, so, but a very cool thing with ketamine, and there's a big group in Mount Sinai uh, in, in New York where I work that are looking into the role of ketamine. There's groups in Yale and other places that are looking into this as well. Where they found suboptimal uh, doses of ketamine has rapid uh, effect; is very good at rapidly reversing depressive symptoms, and there's clinical trials going on right now. Uh, and what's interesting is ketamine also act, affects uh, these are genes, so these are is a molecular analysis. But the main point is they're showing that the, when they administered ketamine to the animals, gene expression, clogged gene expression was robustly affected. Right. So this ties up with our idea that. Maybe one of the ways ketamine is rapidly reversing depression is it's affecting clock proteins that may affect sleep-wake cycles, right? So studies are going on now to try and see, to understand this process further. Uh, but this is very exciting for us. So in this cartoon here, though they think is ketamine or sleep deprivation, may target, this is the anterior cingulate cortex, an area involved in emotion, uh, uh, um, learning and memory. Uh, and also affected in depressive, uh, it's also actually used as a treat, uh, deep brain stimulation in the cingulate cortex has been very effective in alleviating depression. But what they think is ketamine or sleep deprivation may be activating common circadian pathways that, change, that result in neuroplasticity that then result in rapid antidepressant effect. We don't know. Right now this is what we want to look at amongst, together with some other people. Okay, so now we'll come on to what we're doing in our lab. So, this is a general experimental approach. Um, So, if you see here, so I like to look at different levels of analysis, right? So, our behavior is a result of molecular and cellular processes, right, going on in our brain. So, we look at behavior and then we zoom in into neurophysiological changes, so, looking at neural circuits, right? And then changes in those neural circuits are most likely due to molecular changes. So that we zoom in further and we look at, this is what we've just started, but we want to look at molecular changes, right? So, and this is just a cartoon I show to kind of express, show some of the methods we use. And I won't talk about all these methods. Okay, so we do behaviour, which I'll talk about. So we have an animal model of depression, okay? We do functional physiology, we can measure neural activity in vitro, and eventually we'll do it in vivo in in the behaving animal but right now we can, do, we can measure activity in, in slices, brain slices. We can label specific cell types and specific cell projections and look at how these dynamics of these change, the specific cell types and cell projections change in non-depressed, depressed mouse models, okay? And I won't talk about this. We can also express certain light-sensitive proteins, right? Which, when we shine light into the brain, we can either activate certain cell types or inhibit certain cell types and modulate behavior. So we can do direct correlation of brain circuits with behavior, okay? And then we've just started some molecular analysis now. And this we haven't done yet. We want to do in vivo imaging so we can image specific, label specific cells in the brain in a behaving animal and see the change in neurodynamics. Okay? Um, right, I mentioned we, do, we have an animal model of depression. But how do you study depression in rodents? Okay. Because you can't really ask them how they feel. You know, they all look the same. So we use this, mouse model of depression, the chronic social defeat paradigm. And I'll quickly just run through it. So basically we take our test mouse, right? And we put it into the home cage of an aggressor, a retired male breeder, right? So as I mentioned before, this is if you follow American politics, it's not too dissimilar. This guy, old white guy, does not like this brown guy coming into his uh, territory, right? So anyway, our test mouse gets attacked by this uh, uh, resident, the aggressor mouse. It's a retired male breeder. It undergoes a different par- paradigm, so about 10 minutes of physical aggression, and then it undergoes 24 hours of sensory stress. So it's undergoing through physical and sensory stresses. So it's left in the home cage, but now it's separated with a plexiglass divider. So the mouse is exposed to sensory stresses, visual or factory uh, stresses, right? And then this is repeated for about 10 days, okay, with a different aggressor. And then we, have, we, have, we do one of the measures of this depressive like behavior. We measure social interaction. Mice are social animals. Right? So if you put a mouse in a home cage, in, another, in an arena with another mouse, you want to interact with them. Right? So it's similar to, and again, it's a mouse model, right? that's why we're increasing our repertoire of behavioural models. But this model uh, is a sort of modelling uh, social isolation in a way. Okay? So we measure, for example, the amount of time a mouse explores the arena when there's no social target there. So that will be just random arena and we have a camera to track its movement. And then we measure the amount of time the mouse will spend explo- uh, interacting with the social target. So the social target now is behind a, another small box, but there's holes and they'll try to interact with it. Okay? So typically mice that uh, are stress-naive, you'll see here, there's a social target here, it will spend more time interacting. right? Whereas stress-susceptible mice, or so mice that exhibit this depressive-like behavior, they spend less time interacting. And what is interesting, like in the human population, and I won't talk about this study, we found uh, that a subset of these is hom- genetically homogeneous mice, lab mice, you get a subpopulation that are resilient. And it's been shown that there are different molecular processes, what we call homeostatic changes. Okay? There are different adaptive processes uh, between the stress-resilient and stress-susceptible mice. Okay? That's another level of study other people are doing, trying to understand what makes someone resilient. Okay? Um, and I don't know if I'll see. This is a video just to show you the kind of interaction we do. So it's just speeded up. So the mouse on the, I don't know if you can see it, is resilient, the mouse on the left is resilient, the mouse on the uh, right is susceptible. You can't see there's a social target on either side here. And generally the main point is you'll see, so this is speeded up, this mouse. The resilient mouse spends more time trying to interact with the social target, whereas uh, a susceptible mouse does not. Okay? Um, And we do it in red light because uh, mice don't like bright light. Okay, so we just use dim red light for this behavior paradigm. And another measure we do is sucrose preference. So it measures anhedonia. Like a lot of uh, human patients, they exhibit anhedonic traits. Uh, So for mice, you give a mouse uh, a two-bottle choice of sucrose or water, so 1% sucrose or water. They'll definitely prefer sucrose. It's sweet, right? Uh, whereas mice that exhibit this depressive-like traits, they have this anhedonic uh, exhibit anhedonic traits. They have much lower preference for sucrose. Okay, and this kind of models uh, anhedonia in humans. For example, you could be used to like reading books before, and then you, know, you you're depressed. Something you if something happened. You're depressed. You stop reading books. So, you know, you stop doing things that you used to like doing before. Okay, and again, this is an animal model. All right, so. But with this, these models are useful for, for us to try and understand what may be happening in the brain. And now I'll show you just very briefly some data, okay? So here's some data where we've looked at projections from this area of the brain, okay? This area we we're very interested in because it has strong connections to the SCN. SCN is the master clock. The lateral herbanula. Is known so this area here is known to integrate emotion and action selection, basically motivation. Uh, it has robust connections with the master clock, and itself has robust oscillatory activity, right? So it has circadian rhythmicity. Okay. These two regions, the v- VTA and also raphe, again don't need to worry the details. This LHb sends projections to these areas. These areas have been shown to be important in mood regulation, amongst other things, and also in reward processing. Okay. Um, and also, I haven't shown it here, these two areas send, VTN and dorsal raphe, send back projections, back projections back to the SCN so you can regulate the clock, all right? So, what we're gonna do, what we do is we try to correlate the physiology with behavior, right? So we're gonna look now at these lateral habenular inputs to these two areas here that we know are important in mood regulation. Um, so we do this, so we correlate, how do we correlate neurophysiology to behavior, right? So, activity in the brain, changes in activity to changes in behaviour. I know it's very simplistic, right, but uh, that's the way we look at it in this context here. So what we do is we can label specific projections. So we do surgery in the mouse brain. We inject, for example, retrobeads. So these are beads that go back, so you inject it in a, what we call downstream of one area. right? This will then retro or project up any inputs going into that area of the brain, basically, right? Then what we can do, okay, so we do that. So we inject in, in this case, Dorsal raphe V O V T A. So if you have, so in this experiment here, if you inject in the DRN to dorsal raphe, if you then make a slice, take the take out the brain, look at the lateral habenula, you will see green fluorescent beads. You will know that that cell is projecting to the dorsal raphe. Okay, so you can then measure activity or do molecular analysis on those specific cells and look at what's happening in those specific projections uh, in whatever uh, related to whatever behavior. And we do that in terms of our stress behaviour. So we put mice through this behaviour paradigm, okay, then we get our stress resilient, stress susceptible and then we do in vitro physiology and try to measure activity uh, in these brain regions, okay. Uh, And this is some findings we just got recently, okay, so remember this er this area of the brain has oscillations, right, but here we just want to see whether this dynamics has changed, a region that has circadian rhythmicity, whether the activity of these regions has changed. So here, we put mice into stresses and then we measured basically just uh, neural activity, so the excitability of the cell, uh, in stress-naive, uh, stress-resilient, uh, stress and stress-susceptible mice. And what we found was in stress-susceptible mice, the activity was significantly higher, much higher, okay? And we're doing some studies now to understand the biophysics of so what's happening, molecular changes that may be leading to this upregulation. Um, but this implies something, right? So this shows that this increase in activity of this projection may be part of the, the, the reason for this expression of this depressive behavior. Now, also, uh, and this was studies uh, done by Hale-Louis, uh, he also did recordings in, in simultaneously, I mean in the same day, in the dorsal raphe, so the, 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 the region that was receiving inputs from this region, right? And he did recordings, and this was just recording in unlabeled cells, so we're going to repeat this with more systematic labelling. But when he did these recordings, he found this. And this is very interesting for us. So he found now in the stresses of susceptible mice, the activity decreased. Now the dorsal raphe is highly enriched in serotonin. Serotonin is also uh, involved in mood regulation, right? Like serotonin uptake blockers, right? So fluxetine, I think, for example. So... Um, so this goes with the idea that lower serotonin levels can lead to depressive disorders, right? Um, and this is also interesting for us because you see that the stress-resilient mice, there was an upregulation. We don't know what that means yet. Right now, we're just sort of trying to get an idea of what circuits are really focusing on. stress susceptible mice, there's increased activity in the dorsal, in the serotonin-rich areas, and there's decreased activity in the serotonin-rich areas in stress-receptible mice. And this now in terms of understanding circuits, goes along with an idea that we were thinking of, and other people have also mentioned this, that there may be this neuron, this is an inhibitory neuron, so for us it's interesting because it suggests that this increased activity in this region of the brain that has circadian oscillations is activating this inhibitory, what we call interneuron, increased activity of this decreases activity because it's sending neurotransmitters that ramps down activity of these these cells here. So we're going to be doing more studies to try and understand this circuit in the context of rhythm changes. But, uh, so this is very interesting for us. And then now we also have, we're doing, we've just started, my lab just started a year ago. We're doing uh, some behavioural outputs of circadian rhythmicity and understanding how stress can affect circadian rhythms, okay? So we do basically measure wheel running activity or we can measure temperature. Uh, wheel running, we just put a mouse in a cage, we can control the light cycle, measure how much it runs in the day and night. Or we can do what we call this with, with telemetric uh, technology. We can uh, implant the small pills into the abdomen of the mouse. And then using this uh, sensor here that is placed below the mouse, we can measure how much it moves or, or the change of temperature. Because we'll measure the, its uh, core body temperature throughout the day and night. And this is the data which is very interesting also for us. So here, for example, you have stress-naive mice, stress-resilient, and stress susceptible. And this is ongoing work. What we found was, so this is standard rhythms I showed, right? you put a mouse in a light dark cycle, they'll have more activity during the nighttime. Uh, resilient mice have the same thing, but the stress susceptible mice, the le- uh, level of activity is decreased, okay? So we see here, significant decrease in activity. And another thing, and again, we're replicating this now, is uh, the level of the, the period. So we have, mice have a periodicity of about 23.7, the C57 strain of mice. What we find is, if this is real, we don't know if it's real, the periodicity, the period of the mouse has been increased. So, somehow, remember going back to the idea of shifting the rhythm of the mouse, right? So, we have this tentative evidence that rhythmicity in in wheel running activity is somehow changed, all right? And body temperature, although we don't know what to make of it yet, body temperature is elevated in both resilient and susceptible mice, but here we can just say the stress exposure seems to change. But maybe what may be happening is stress is affecting, uh, ramping up the system, uh, system in both mice that are exposed to stress, but somehow the resilient mice are able to better cope because of other molecular changes. We don't know yet, okay? Uh, okay, so that's the circadian part. Now we go to the uh, studies linking sleep and depression. So this part here is three. How does the stress affect the sleep cycle then that lead to changes in mood? And again, we're looking at this area, this area of the brain. This area is important in REM sleep motion. Okay? Uh, and we also know this area, this, this, this particular region of the brain sends projections to uh, uh, areas that regulate mood. okay. Um, and this is some, um, again, preliminary data where we can measure, do EEG recordings in mice in a light-tight chamber. So if you can see here's a mouse in here with cables, we can do EEG recordings. Uh, and then this is just an example of some EEG recordings we did. Um, and also, we can automatically sleep deprive this mice. So, we have a system where we can back it, so the cable goes back to the computer, backfeed, and we can, when the animal goes to a certain, and we can program it, when the animal goes into a certain phase of sleep, right, we can then shake this uh, platform, right, so to keep it awake, okay? Um, so, we can do things like we measure homeostatic sleep changes. So we can measure different aspects of like REM sleep, non-REM sleep, transition from REM to wake sleep, and so on and so forth. So this is very early stuff. Uh, Okay, Basma again likes to give me data just before I present, so I just got this today. Uh, But it's interesting. This is just proof of concept. We want to just see. This is a measure of homeostatic sleep uh, that she did. Okay, this experiments where she was uh, stressing the mice and then. uh, oh no, she hasn't. This is actually not stressing. This is just sleep depriving the mice. Okay? So, you know, I mentioned slow wave sleep and REM sleep. What she found is right now, we're just looking at when you sleep deprived mice, do you have this effect on sleep pressure changes? And we do. Again, this is very preliminary data, but we see that REM sleeps, this mice were deprived for two hours, oh, sorry, four hours of sleep, and she measured uh, uh, two hours of, of uh, REM activity. REM activity in mice that were sleep-deprived is increased. So having some sort of REM rebound, okay? And this is what you see in, uh, in actually in patients that you sleep-deprived, they report reta- uh, alleviation of, uh, of, of depression, okay? But then as soon as they sleep, they have a rebound of REM, okay? Because your body needs it, we don't know why. So you actually have a much longer period of REM sleep than if you were not sleep-deprived. So this is just to show that we can measure changes in REM or slow wave sleep dynamics, this particular REM dynamics. And also now we're doing some molecular analysis, okay? And this is also very recent data, like a mm, few weeks ago. Uh, These are two different areas of the brain, and we found changes in, again, this is very preliminary, In this is in blue, susceptible residual control. We found in mice that underwent this this paradigm, they were stressed, went through stress, and then we sleep deprived them, and then we took out different areas of the brain and looked at gene changes, expression. We found that uh, in stress susceptible mouse, certain genes, levels of expression were lower. And this is A1A, A2A, these are adenosine receptors. Adenosine is a known marker for sleep pressure. Um, uh, So as your sleep pressure increases, the levels of... uh, Adenosine increases the the longer you're awake. That is thought to be part of the mechanism by which that increases the pressure for sleep. What's also interesting, caffeine is an antagonist for adenosine receptors, is maybe one of the reasons why caffeine you drink at night may keep you awake because it blocks the effects of adenosine on increasing sleep pressure. Okay? So we found this effect that sleep pressure, if this is real, one of the molecular markers of increasing sleep pressure is changed in this region of the brain and in this region of the brain. So this very preliminary work now is, is related with looking at physiological changes in specific sub-areas of the brain and also looking at molecular changes, right? So at different levels of analysis. And we're finishing off now. And also, just to share, we have, say, we have, we're doing another, st- uh, one of the uh, students in the lab is doing this social dominance study. Uh, we want to see whether dominance changes. Um, a, first of all, after exposure to stress, and then we'll go into whether the clock and sleep wake cycle is related to that. So basically, we put two mice in a tube and see which one, it's a very simple study, which one pushes the other one. We can measure anxiety tests and so on and so forth, and then do physiological measures. Okay? And I've spoken long enough, so I'd like to just thank you all, first of all, for hopefully not all of you falling asleep. I'd like to thank uh, the group in NYUAD. So Herlui and Basma are my fantastic postdocs, the fantastic postdocs in the lab. Uh, Herlui uh, is working on the sort of circadian component of mood disorders. Basma is uh, looking at the sleep component of mood disorders, right? Uh, and they're doing an amazing job of like basically setting up the lab and actually doing a lot of the things. And then all these guys here as well, doing a lot of the first in the Middle East, I would say. So, uh, also we have uh four. Sorry, I don't have Halas picture yet, so I have you here. <laughs> so uh, Marima and Gloria are senior capstone students, they started their projects now. So Marima's looking at uh, the social uh, dominance uh, d- doing the social dominance study. Gloria is sort of like looking at the starting off the molecular aspects of the uh, studies in our lab. Uh, Alvaro and Hala, they're like junior capstone students. They'll be starting their project next year, uh, or hopefully we can start some of it soon. So Alvaro will be doing some uh, sleep-related stuff and mood disorders, and Hala will be doing uh, some work with jet lag type experiments. Uh, also I'd like to thank my uh, sort of collaborators. So Gord Fischel, he was at NYU New York, but he still has a lab here in NYUAD. And he just moved to Harvard Medical School. He has his group here, so Ching and Li Hua, they're expert molecular biologists, so they work, we work together with them, they've been very helpful. And uh, also like to thank the Baol, we have a wonderful, like the, the science department in NYUAD is amazing. It's a wonderful place to work in. I really enjoy it. It's a very cool dynamics and, you know, the science and engineering people, they're wonderful. So it makes this a great place to work. Uh, i also like to thank my wife and daughter for sitting through this, uh, so that's very nice. And also I'd uh, like to thank Claude for, he's up here, for um, being also like a, an official mentor, just being very nice. And also I put it up this picture up there to show his lab members that he actually does stuff in the lab.